My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in that grace. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. campuses and auditoriums throughout the East Bay and to see if inside our friends inside the incarcerated church. We're glad you're with us and to all of you watching online. Today we get to launch our newest series, A Study Through First Peter. And in order to begin a study through a letter like this one, we have to understand a few things. Um, as with any book from this collection of 66 books um, that make up the Bible, it's always necessary to remember that this book is written by a real person at a real time to real people in a real historical, cultural, and socioeconomic setting. So let's begin by discussing the author, Peter. And when we're first introduced to Peter, we meet a man named Simon. Jesus would later change his name to Peter, and uh, Simon is from northern Israel, who we think is probably around the ages of 20 to max 30. He's a young man. If he were at Cornerstone today, he'd most likely be in one of our young adult community groups. Um, we also learn that he was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, which the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake, not a sea. And, uh, and from what we learn from an in-depth study of his life, his family seemed to be doing pretty well in the fishing business. Fishing provided the financial stability for his family, and it was their investment for provision now and into the future. And, and Jesus called them out of all of that. Over the course of the next few years of his life, we read a lot about Peter through the first four books of the New Testament, known as the Gospels. And we learn a lot about his experiences with Jesus as one of Jesus' closest disciples. When it came to Jesus' friends, Peter was in the inner circle, and because of his proximity to Jesus, he would have experienced a lot with him. Um, one of my favorite stories about Peter's life is when he's out on a boat and he sees Jesus walking toward him on water. A lot of us have heard this story before, but for those of us who haven't, let me fill you in real quick. Um, when Peter saw Jesus walking on water, he said, to, he said to Jesus, hey, if that's you, Lord, let me know, and I'll come out to the water, call me out on the water to, to meet you. And Jesus says, okay, come on. So Peter, immediately filled with faith and courage, gets out of the boat to walk on water toward Jesus. So he has enough faith to step out of the boat and begin walking on water, and then all of a sudden he notices the water around him, and he realizes how crazy the thing that he's doing is. So he starts to freak out. He feels the wind against his face and sees the water all around him, and he begins to panic. He recognizes that he wasn't safe. He gets uncomfortable. He sees the potential for pain, and he becomes terrified and begins to sink and that's when Jesus reaches out his hand and rescues Peter and says to him, you have such little faith. Do any of you think like you might have reacted like Peter that day? I, I don't think I even would have gotten out of the boat. I'm like, man, that's a cool thing you're doing, Jesus. Good for you. Um, I mean, if we're being honest, most of us would say we don't really enjoy not being safe. Like as soon as we realize that something isn't safe, we have a tendency to back out pretty quickly. 
It reminds me of when my wife bought me a motorcycle for my birthday a few years back. Uh, For my 30th birthday, she surprised me after years of saying that me owning a motorcycle was just not going to happen. Um, But she she got me one for my birthday that year. However, the gift she gave me came with one stipulation. I had to take motorcycle safety classes. So eventually, after about a year or so, I did. And in that class, they taught us how dangerous motorcycles are and how many people die every year from motorcycle crashes and how if, if you own a motorcycle, it's not a matter of if you're gonna crash, but when. It was, it was a super encouraging class. Uh, so, so I vowed that day to never, ever tell my wife anything that I learned in that class. Until now, because she's gonna hear this talk and I'm a little nervous that she's gonna say, yeah, no more, no more motorcycles. Because she wants me to be safe and secure which I understand, I don't blame her for that. Like, I want that for her as well. I want that for our son, and I even want that for me. I I want to be safe, but not so safe I have to sell my motorcycle. Uh, But this is kind of part of Peter's story in the few years he's with Jesus. In these moments of doubt and uncertainty, not just on the water that day, but through many different circumstances, he kind of leans back into a desire for security and safety. That's the man who wrote this book. And this letter that he wrote was written to people who definitely were not safe or secure. See, they are in the midst of suffering, something we can gather from this time period that the letter was written in and from what we read in the first few few verses of 1 Peter 1. This is where we're going to be studying today. Um, They're facing intense persecution. They are not safe which is why this letter might be difficult for us to relate with. I mean, most of us probably aren't going through intense persecution for our faith right now. Our very lives are not threatened because of our faith. Our safety is not at risk because of a professed belief in Jesus Christ for for most of us. As American citizens, we're allowed to follow Jesus freely, publicly, and openly. So how do we connect with an almost 2,000-year-old text written to people that were not afforded these freedoms and who were actually suffering because of the faith they had in Jesus. People who were suffering because of their beliefs. They were not safe because of what they believed. And so I'm curious how over the next eight weeks as we study this text, how are we gonna connect with this letter? Is this letter too far removed from the safe world that we live in? and to speak plainly, the safe world that we all seek. Which also causes me to wonder if these words I read earlier this week from the Christian authors Todd Hahn and David Verhagen are, uh, if they hold any truth. Here's what they wrote. We may bemoan a moral decline in our country. Our actual concern, if truth be known, is to not see a vital Christianity flourish, but rather to secure a more orderly and less violent society in which to live out our comfortable and self-satisfied lives. In other words, we want a safe world. We desire a safe faith, which when put against the early church that existed to eradicate evil from the world, regardless of personal sacrifice, Are we falling into the spiritual and existential dilemma of trying to eradicate pain from our lives for our own personal welfare? So what can can we learn from a 2,000-year-old text written to individuals facing intense persecution? 
Well, I believe God has something for us today. So let's turn our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start right in verse 1. Um, if it's one of your first times opening a Bible, 1 Peter's toward the end of your Bible after James before 2 Peter, which is the second letter. Um, and uh, you can get there on your iPhone or Android apps as well. All right, 1 Peter, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is the author we just learned about, is writing to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Um, we later discover, as we read on in 1 Peter, that this letter was written from Rome, which Peter called Babylon. And he sent this letter to the churches in these provinces in Asia Minor. Uh, this is modern-day Turkey, and he sent it to these provinces, uh, Bithynia Pontus, Asia, Galatia, Cappadocia, um, and he's over here in Rome. And this is where these churches are that are being persecuted. He wrote to encourage them as they faced intense persecution and suffering. And he opens this letter by greeting them as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. He, he makes it clear throughout this letter that the Christians he's writing to are Gentiles, non-Jews. But what's interesting is here he uses uh, phrases like God's elect, exiles, and chosen. Thanks, guys. Um, words, these are words from the Old Testament that described how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who himself was an exile. He was a wanderer. Peter wants these suffering Christians to see that through Jesus and his sacrifice, they now belong to the family of Abraham, and they're just like him. They're misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home. In the introductory part of this letter, we read a song of praise and adoration to God for causing people to be born again into a living hope, into Jesus' resurrection, and into the power of the Spirit. And we see this in the next few verses. Look at verse 3 with me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, into the living hope of Jesus Christ through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept up in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, he begins his letter to these suffering Christians by telling them of a new birth. They have received into a living hope, an inheritance that is eternal, that, that lasts forever. And Peter takes an interesting approach to their suffering. He explains that life's hardships actually deepen our faith and make it more genuine, something that Simon Peter can speak from firsthand. Look at what he says next in verse 6. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Okay, in one sentence, we read the two present tense words, rejoice and grief. Peter's telling his readers that following Jesus comes with both extreme joy and deep pain. Something that might seem like a weird paradox to most. 
Like they seem to contradict one another, but not to followers of Jesus. He also says, in a little while, these trials, these things that you've been suffering, they won't last for eternity. I mean, remember a few verses ago, he talked about the inheritance in heaven. Simon Peter is clearly looking at the eternal and is highlighting the impermanence of trials. Trials that do, however, have value. Verse 7, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which gold perishes even though refined by fire, may result, your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These, these trials, these hardships, they're like a refining fire. Even gold that is refined by fire perishes, but your faith through these trials will not. Faith that is actually of greater worth than gold. And remember what he says about these trials. He says there are trials of many kinds. Trials of many kinds. Well, today I would like to look at two types of trials together based off what we read here in 1 Peter. Number one, trials we are currently in, and number two, the trials we are trying to avoid. Um, let's start with this first one, the trials we're currently in. These are the ones that, we, that we're experiencing as we walked into church today. Can anyone think of a trial that they are going through right now? Can you picture a trial in your life? Can you, can you imagine or, or, or visualize something that you're going through right now and hold on to this as we talk about trials for a few moments? I mean, if I can be transparent with you, I'm still walking through suffering that scares me and kind of makes me wonder, like, what the heck God is up to. Um, I think a lot of you have heard me discuss my dad's ongoing battle with cancer. And if you're tired of me talking about it, I'm sorry. This is where I'm at right now. This is where my family's at right now. Um, but after the last time I talked to you about his cancer, he actually had to have another tumor removed from his back that going into the surgery, we were convinced and doctors were convinced that it was a malignant tumor. Um, we actually had to cancel a family reunion back to Indiana to go be with dad during his surgery down in San Diego. And, and it was a super stressful and difficult time. Um, it was so stressful that the night before his surgery, my dad and I got into a huge argument um, because he wanted my wife and son and I to still go back to Indiana for our family reunion and we wanted to go and be with him. And so we were on the phone going back and forth and back and forth. And I finally got to the point where I just said, Dad, what would you do if you were in my situation? Like if it was your dad going through this, what would you do? And he said, I'd go be with my dad. And I said, good, we were already leaning that way and you just put the nail in the coffin for us. Which is not the best analogy to use <laughs> with someone who's about to get emergency surgery the next day. Um, it turned out that the tumor was benign, praise God, but he still, um, yeah, we can praise God for that. Um, but, but he still has a, a few spots in his lungs and in his lower spine that the doctors are hoping um, will just not grow or something, I don't know. Uh, so it's still, it's still tough. And, and that's been my trial lately. I mean, I know it's my dad who has cancer, and I realize how self-involved I sound right now, but... But honestly, this is what I've been walking through. This is what's difficult. 
trusting God in the midst of the uncertainty of my dad's health. Cancer is not fun. Trials like this are, are the worst, aren't they? Like, I mean, I mean, we're all going through them in some way, shape, or form. Health issues, relationship struggles, job frustrations, failing marriages, loneliness, stress, anxiety, uncertainty, depression. I mean, the list goes on. And we can each identify with something. But I think one of the key things we learn from Peter in this letter is this. Without suffering, you can never become the person you want to be. Without suffering, you can never become the person you want to be. Suffering is such a great opportunity for us to refine our faith. Peter understood the value of the trials we go through because after a few years with Jesus, he changed, which is what happens when you spend time with Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus and stay the same. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Peter was no longer that guy who was looking out for his own security and comfort and safety. He ended up being a guy who walked through intense persecution, hardship, and difficult trials because of his faith in Jesus that he held on to, and he experienced the growth and development that comes from all of that. And now he's helping the persecuted church in Asia Minor to understand that you cannot grow without suffering. He's helping them to see that nobody grows without trials. Why is this? Well, because trials, sorrows, hardships, they grab our attention like nothing else can. And when we reflect on the trials we go through, when we think on the pain we experience, we grow. C.S. Lewis wrote in his inspirational book, The Problem of Pain, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. One of the core things Peter is getting at in his letter is this. Let suffering build your faith, not crush it. Well, how do we do this? For one thing, we have an illustration from Peter that helps us visualize what's, what's happening. If we look back at verses Six through seven, Peter says, your faith gets refined in the same way that gold gets refined by fire. Why? That your faith may prove genuine, a process that results in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, which is all of greater worth to God than a pile of gold. Peter's teaching us that life's troubles are like a melting furnace that puts out so much heat that the impurities float to the surface and then they get scraped away to leave a more pure result. It's a beautiful and powerful image. But here's the thing about the furnace. We all know that being in a furnace can have the opposite effect, right? Like instead of purifying something, it can burn it to a crisp. Instead of a refined result, what you could be left with is ash. So when we face a trial, when we face a fire, will it build our faith or will it crush it? There was an instance when this literally happened in the Bible, um, in the Old Testament, where three teenagers were thrown into a furnace. 
Um, you may know the story. It's from Daniel chapter 3. There's this crazy king who convinces himself that he is God and everyone should bow down and worship him. So he has this huge gold statue made and and decrees for everyone to bow down to it and worship it. And and for the most part, everyone complies. Except these three Jewish teenage boys who say, nah, not us. The king, his name was Nebuchadnezzar. He finds out about this and he loses his mind. He's livid that these three teenage punks would defile him. So he says, heat up my royal furnace seven times hotter than normal. And so his workers do it, and they get this thing super hot, and then he says, great, now throw them in. Let them burn. And that's what they do. They throw these teenage boys in the furnace. It's actually so hot that the guards who throw the teenage boys in are incinerated. And as the king watches from a safe distance, he's shocked because as he watches, he sees these three young men walking around in the furnace. And the craziest part is that he doesn't just see three men, he sees four a fourth guy is walking around in there, and the king is like, I see four walking around, unbound and unharmed, and one of them looks like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar was an extremely narcissistic individual, and he didn't know anything about God. Remember, he thought he was God. But, but here in this moment, even he knows that something miraculous is happening. He knows that there's a God involved in this situation. So he orders everyone to come out of the furnace. So he can find out by what power is this miracle happening, but only three people come out. The fourth never comes out, and this whole thing just absolutely flattens the king. He is never the same after this moment. Well, well, who was the fourth guy? Who was the son of God that the king witnessed? Well, I'm sure that Peter knows, and, and we know. It was Jesus. Jesus was with those young men in the furnace. He went into the furnace with them, walking side by side, and the king saw the entire thing. And he, he realized what these three teenage boys already knew. They were never in there alone. You see, I fully believe, and my dad fully believes, that in his trial and suffering and his battle with cancer, that he is not alone. And in all my fear and confusion, I believe with every fiber of my being that neither am I. And I believe with every fiber of my being that in your trial, neither are you. I believe this is true for all of us, that the Son of God, if we want him to, will walk with us through whatever trial we face or are about to face. And what Peter is teaching us is that when you go into the fire, you really go in holding Jesus' hand, and when you're in there, he's turning you into something extraordinary, something refined, because this truth will always remain. Without suffering, you can never become the person you want to be, or better yet, we will never become the person Jesus wants us to be. Which is precisely why he will and does walk with us through our trials. And if we hold on to this truth, we get to decide that our trials will not crush our faith. No, 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 our trials will build our faith. But let's take this one step further. Because this collection of books that we read, this story of God, is totally opposite to what our culture says about suffering. 
The principles and values of the world we live in teach us that pain is meaningless, that there is no redemptive value in suffering, and trials must be avoided at all costs. But following Jesus contradicts all of that, which brings us to the second type of trials, a completely different type than what we just discussed. Um, If we can put that list back up, the second type of trials are the trials we are trying to avoid. You see, following Jesus doesn't mean we won't face trials anymore. That is a lie. Following Jesus does not guarantee that we will live long and prosper. That's not something we learned from Jesus. We learned that from Star Wars or something. (laughs) I'm kidding. I know it's Star Trek, but Pastor Billy hates when I confuse the two, so I have an an obligation to intentionally mess that up. Um, But but this is such an important truth that that we can grab out of this text as we remember that it was written to individuals facing persecution. And the proven genuineness of their faith would have meant something significant to them. If faith, like these churches in Asia Minor were exhibiting and Peter was encouraging them in, is of greater worth than gold, greater worth than riches and prosperity and well-being, then consequently faith means, faith means that I am not looking out for my own comfort and my own safety. I'm not trying to avoid the trials that God has for me. I believe this is why in verse seven of the first chapter of this letter, it's like Peter is relaying the same sentiment, the same call, the same direction that he personally received from Jesus Christ in his life. When Peter was younger, he learned a lot from Jesus, but one of the main things he held onto were these four words, take up your cross and follow me. A cross, something that would absolutely destroy someone. But this is what Jesus lived and what he called Peter and anyone who follows him to imitate, and now it's a similar sentiment that Peter is bringing to the persecuted church in Asia Minor. Take up your cross, words that would really resonate with the first century Christian as they faced intense suffering for their faith. But what do these words mean to us today? Remember what I said earlier, that nobody grows without trials. Well, if that's true, then I wonder what's happening to my faith. If this is true, I wonder what's happening to my faith if I'm trying to avoid any trial that comes my way. Larry Lawden, a philosophy professor at the University of Hawaii, wrote a book called The Book of Risks. And in one of the chapters, he talks about household dangers. Some of these things are things you would expect, like 460,000 people a year are injured by kitchen knives, 100,000 people a year are injured by power and manual saws, Um, But some of them got a little strange. Um, Did you know that 75 Americans die every single year from lawnmower-related injuries? And we are leading the world in that category. Like, go USA. Good for us. Um, And there were a couple other ones that were just strange. So I I sat in my house, and I was like, what's out to get me? Um, I was trying to figure out, like, what's there and what's dangerous. And I sat there, and I'm looking around, and, and, and I realized that I was sitting on the most dangerous thing in my entire house, my couch. And I love my couch. It is so comfortable. But that's what's so dangerous about it. Because what's dangerous about my couch is not what I do on it, but rather what I don't do. The people I don't serve from my couch. 
the relationships and community I don't deepen on my couch, the conversations I don't have, the prayers I never pray, the adventures I never take, the injustices I never stand against, and the battles I never fight. I mean, unless I'm Facebooking from my couch, because that seems to be an extremely effective way to argue with someone that has a different opinion. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> social media arguments help no one. Face-to-face -face works really well, but, uh, but that would mean we'd have to get off our couch. So, um, look, if, if faith found in and through trials is of greater worth than gold, then my next step should be towards safety and security and comfort. It should not be there. But rather, my next step should be toward whatever trial or situation I've been trying to avoid. Like, I could just hear Jesus speaking through this text telling me, Steve, I never said, take up your couch and follow me. <laughs> Even though sitting on our couches is exactly what we're going to do this weekend because it's football season and God made the weekend for church and football. I get it. <laughs> but, but maybe this is what God is calling us to as we try and relate to this text as American citizens in 2017. Not necessarily how to respond to a trial, but rather discovering a trial we need to actively pursue and maybe discovering our purpose as we intentionally step into difficult and uncomfortable situations. I think one thing we discover as a follower of Jesus is that if I have a God-given purpose, it allows me to face the potential for pain and not only survive it, but thrive in it. And some of us are sitting here today and God has been nudging us towards something big for a while now. Is that you? Do you feel like God has something for you? Maybe a dream or a fear or something you've, you've hidden away or something you've been avoiding? Is there something that God has called you to that you've tried to ignore? Is there something that God is just breaking your heart over, prompting you toward action? Or maybe it's something that disrupts the safe Christian bubble we've created for ourselves, filled with our ideals, our interpretations, our understanding, and we have no desire to spend the time listening to someone who might think a little bit differently than us, because that's too uncomfortable. In light of our desire for security and safety and comfort, let's ask ourselves, what trial have I been avoiding? Most likely, whatever trial that is, the answer to this, this question, our avoidance of it has been and will continue to be detrimental to our faith until we take a step toward it. I think in our attempt to create a safe and comfortable and painless life, we may have insulated ourselves from experiencing the proven genuineness of our faith. We limit our opportunities to experience the sometimes dangerous life that God has called us into and the refining fire that purifies and perfects and polishes our faith. Erwin McManus wrote this in his book, The Barbarian Way. He said, um, when we are born again, remember Peter talked about new birth, when, when we are born again, we are dropped not into a maternity ward, but a war zone. Our birthplace is less mother's womb and more battlefield earth. Maybe the first word we should hear should not be welcome, but jump. It might be time for some of us to jump. The Christian faith is not a safe one. And so many of us have been told that this throughout our lives. Hey, follow Jesus and your life will be better. And we've equated the word better with the word safer. I think, to be honest with our church today, I think this is why so many of our kids are walking away from the faith. 
They're brought up in a belief system that has a tendency to lean more toward being rigid and boring and mundane. But true followers of Christ, like Peter, not only walk through difficult trials, they walk to them. The Christians in Asia Minor, this letter was written to, understood that following Jesus, and we understand this too, that following Jesus is a life of risk, a life of freedom, a life of faith, and a life of adventure. I believe that's why we're being asked to step into, uh, this is what we're being asked to step into as followers of Jesus, a risky, threatening, and sometimes scary faith in order to become exactly what God intends for us to become. Uh, a, few, a few months ago, um, our five-year-old son came into my wife in, in my room at, at two in the morning, and, um, and he was sobbing like a real sincere cry, one that as a parent, your heart just, just breaks over. Um, Jericho was so shook up that he could not get any words out to tell me what was wrong, and so I picked him up and I carried him back to his room. To be completely honest with you, my whole goal that night was to make sure that he did not sleep in our bed. Uh, whenever he does, he lays in between Amanda and I at like a 90 degree angle, like he's trying to create some sort of math equation, like one minus one equals zero sleep for mom and dad. It's, uh, it's terrible. So, so I carry him back to his room and I just started like comforting him and, and trying to figure out like what was going on and I said, hey bud, what's wrong? And he was finally able to muster some words and he looked at me and said, it's scary in my room, daddy. And all I could say was, I'm so sorry, but you have to stay in your room. That's, that's how you become a big boy. That's how you grow, learning to be brave even when you're scared. You're going to be okay. And with a puzzled look, he, he asked me, is it scary in your room too, daddy? <laughs> and I thought about how badly I wanted to get back to sleep. And so I said, yes, which isn't a lie. If you've ever had a five-year-old wake you up in the middle of the night with those beady little eyes just staring at you, it's <laughs> frightening. So, so I said, yes. And then Jericho said something I will never forget. In the sweetest little voice, he said, I'm so sorry, Daddy, but you can be brave like me too. <laughs> you see, Jericho realized that night that no matter where he went, it was going to be scary and dark. And his response, his choice, was to work through the discomfort. He trusted me that in the end, it was all going to be okay. I hope he doesn't ever lose that. I hope he doesn't lose his faith in what I told him, that in the end, it's going to be okay. And I hope and I pray that he never loses the courage he had that night to sit in the tension of his fear. Because maybe it's a dark room today but it could be something big God is calling him to 10 years down the road. It may be a dark room today, but it could be an injustice he can't help but stand up against later on in his life. It may be a dark room today, but it could be a painful conversation, an agonizing sin, an excruciating circumstance that he needs to come right at somewhere down the road. And I hope and pray that he isn't afraid to jump when those moments come up in life that he has the courage to step toward whatever trial God has for him, not because of his faith in what I've told him, no, because of his faith in the everlasting God that he has submitted and surrendered his life to. That as he continues to mature, he takes the same principle and he comes to learn that it's possible to face scary and frightening and threatening situations because he understands and believes that he won't grow unless he learns to walk through his trials with an ever-growing faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ.
But not only do I pray that over my son, I'm praying that for me. And I'm praying that for each of us. That we can look at our trials and our suffering as an opportunity to grow while fully believing and fully trusting in the fact that Jesus will be right there with us the same way he was with those three teenage boys in the furnace. And in the end, it's going to be okay. For many of us, our next step today is to invite Jesus into the furnace that we're in right now, into the trial we're going through, and stop trying to do it alone. That we would come to the realization, come to terms with the fact that there is a deep level refinement process going on, and that we trust that Jesus is not wasting our pain. And for others of us today, our next step is to boldly and courageously leap toward whatever trial God has put on our heart, to be obedient to the call that he has put on our life, to step toward what might not be safe, and to jump into a faith that threatens our comfort and security. See, Peter lived all of this. He was speaking from experience, and he went through many trials to come to a place where he could give the persecuted church and give us hope, and point us toward Jesus. I'd like to close today by praying the last two verses of, or the next two verses over our church. Um, as the worship band comes back out and we sing songs that remind us of the, the love and uh, power and might of who God is and that God's with us, um, that maybe we would be reminded that that's always true and no matter what trial we're in and that we would um, take this prayer and these verses to encourage us and push us toward whatever God has next. Um, will you stand with me as we, as we pray? Let's pray. God, everlasting God, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, though we have not seen you, we love you. And even though we do not see you now, we believe in you and we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for we are receiving the end result of our faith, God, the salvation of our souls. Father, help us to persist. Help us to endure, help us to persevere in the midst of our trials while fully being aware that you are right there with us every time, all the time, God. And Father, for those of us that are here today that need that little nudge to get outside of what might feel comfortable or safe, God, so that our faith can grow as we experience the, the adventure and the risk and the life and the freedom and the faith that you have for us, Father, help us to take that step today. We adore you, God, and we pray all of this in the matchless and powerful and mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.